someone came up to me in the break and they said, they're asking me about the the will meditations and because they know what it's like to do that kind of recording. It's quite grueling. And um, and uh, so he wanted me to, to restate what, what it's about because um, he thought I did a poor uh, sales job, <laughs> which is true because I'm English and it's very hard to self-promote. Um, but it was a really interesting process. I, it took me about three months to write all the scripts. It was 120 pages um, and a very detailed um, uh, guided meditations of about 90, as I said. Um, so it really is a good resource um, if you're wanting support in your daily practice, which many people need, um, to go through systematically different uh, areas of life and practice and meditation. Uh, whether it's concentration or mindfulness or body-centered practices or working with emotions or heart practices, it's a, it's a really good resource to support you in your day life practice. And the meditations are as short as 10 minutes, which is doable. So a Buddhist cartoon joke for you, sort of. Buddhist jokes aren't that funny, really. But um, the master saying to the student, I've never met anyone so thoughtless in all of my life. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you, Master. So when you're you know, really adept at this renunciation practice of giving up you know, endless chatter and idle meanderings of your mind, not that the point is thoughtlessness, but... So... Um, I gave a, this talk, similar talk, last week, and I'm giving a course on the ten paramis, which are ten qualities of awakening, you could say. And as often when I do give a talk, it's driving home I realize what I was supposed to say or what I wanted to say, what was really the essence of that talk. <laughs> so you're getting the, you know, the edited highlights kind of um, improvements. Um, and I, as I said, I've been pitching, uh, asking people what you know, what they're giving up and what they're announcing. And I bumped into a friend of mine in Woodacre today, and uh, she's a young mom. And she's carrying a beautiful little baby, six weeks old. And I and she said, "Oh, what are you talking about?" I said, "I have renunciation." I said, oh, "So what are you? What do you, you know? Is that how's it, what are you giving up?" What are, she says, "What am I giving up? <laughs> Sleep, <laughs> my body, <laughs> free time." personal space, <laughs> my sense of identity. <laughs> and, and, she, and she was talking to her husband about that, and her husband said, isn't that a good thing? Aren't you Buddhists supposed to like, let go of your identity? Anyhow, so renunciation comes in many ways, forced and unforced. Right? And um, so I'm going to talk about outer renunciation and inner renunciation. And just before I say that, just to, to think, reflect for yourself, what does that word bring up for you? I'm going to say the word renunciation, right? I mean, I grew up Catholic, so it has this sort of very Catholic, austere, deprivation, taking away that which is pleasurable and joyful. It's not very attractive to me, and, and maybe to many of you. Anybody think renunciation is really exciting and sexy? And No, it's just not, and it's like, what? It's just not what I want to... It's not part of my American dream. Um, so, but, you know, in every tradition, I would imagine, 
in most traditions that I know, that there is a flavor of this quality, sometimes more of a, in Buddhism it's very overt, you know, that the whole monastic tradition is a renunciate tradition, renouncing the ways of the world, both external and internal. Right? But it's very visible externally that you renounce work and money and sex and entertainment and, and adornment and a lot of things. Right? So it's a very simple, some would say austere life, some would say unencumbered life, not as a as a not as a means to deprive in order to punish, right? which can sometimes be the flavor in, in the Christian tradition, but in order to free one's attention and time and energy up so one can really turn that focus inward to one's own inner meditative spiritual life. which is one way. Right? It's not the only way, but it's one way. And it's certainly been tried and tested for thousands of years in many, many renunciate traditions in Christianity and Buddhism and Sufism, etc. But for most of us, we're not doing that. We're not becoming monks or nuns. I hadn't thought about it. I was on my way to get ordained once upon a time in the middle of my meditation years and life had a different uh, different idea of what I should do it didn't didn't happen. So this is a story um, from Ananda Mayama, who was a very beautiful, wise, enlightened Indian saint from last century, and she was uh, uh, teaching. And um, some businessmen came to her. Four businessmen came, and they were grilling her like, you know, why are you doing, why are you living this life of a nun? You could be you know, so smart and, and wise and beautiful. You could have anything you want. Why are you living this very simple, austere life? And she started laughing and laughing and laughing at them. And they were like, what's she crazy? What's, what's up with her? And she said, she said, it's you who are giving up the world for a little money and a few possessions. I, by my renunciation, have gained everything. I, by my renunciation, have gained everything. So this is the this is the outer renunciation, but the inner fulfillment. Right? So it might look austere and depriving from the outside, but there's not necessarily inner experience. So the Buddha, in a converse way, you know, grew up in a very wealthy, affluent, princely style uh, family and position and lifestyle and saw that that wasn't going to alleviate these very burning existential questions of what does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to be free? How does we find peace when we know we're going to get sick and old and die? What's the, what's the, um, the salvation from that? And so he, he felt like the, his princely life was actually cluttering up his... Uh, perspective and understanding. And so he left it all and became a very uh, ascetic monk for many, many years, well, all the rest of his life. As a support for that journey of awakening. So when I, when I, when I read, I, I love reading um, Buddhist poetry and um, nature poetry and many of the nature poets also taken to a life of simplicity, 
moving to the woods, to the mountains, to the caves, in solitude. Again, in service of this, letting go of that which is uh, encumbering, encumbrance to one's life. This is from Ryokan, who's a beloved Japanese uh, monk and uh, hermit, who says, Too lazy to be ambitious, I let the world take care of itself. Ten days' worth of rice in my bag, a bundle of twigs in my fireplace. Why chatter about delusion and enlightenment? Listening to the night rain on my roof, I sit comfortably with both legs stretched out. That's another one. The plants and flowers I raised about my hut, I now surrender to the will of the wind. And so as you read his poetry, it's just filled with this incredible serene simplicity that comes from a quality of simplicity in, in lifestyle. And, you know, just being up at the retreat, thinking about the context of retreat, the retreat is a form of renunciation. Right? You let go of your life, your work, Facebook, thank God, um, <laughs> you know, texting, food, sex. I mean, you, you let go of a lot. It's a very simple lifestyle. You get up and you meditate and then you go to bed, you know, at the end of the day. It's and for those of you, how many of you have been on retreat here? I imagine quite a few of you, yeah, so maybe a third of you. So those who haven't, it's a very beautiful, uh, profound, serene, simple uh, lifestyle. You know, I've spent months and months and months of my life on retreat and really appreciated the the simplicity. In the same way when I go backpacking, I enjoy the simplicity of how few things we need to live and to be happy. You know, some shelter, some food, some water, safety. Uh, relative safety. So, so what is your experience of your own renunciation? Or practicing Lent if you're Catholic, right? which in my case was usually giving up something fun and very annoying for six weeks. <laughs> Never really understanding what the point of that was except suffering, temporary suffering. So when we're on retreat or when we're in meditation uh, or monastic, uh, we're, we're renouncing the outer, you know, some outer circumstances that, that can distract ourselves from what's really essential, from what's really important, from what's really true. So one of the things that happens on retreat is you get to see how attached we are to our preferences, to what we like, how we like to live and our schedule and our food and our coffee and uh, you know you name it this is 101 preferences come up and preferences aren't a bad thing but how gripped we are by them is, is, is the challenging question you know whether we demand life to be a certain way I was happily not practicing renunciation at dinner. I had three poppadoms, which I'm now feeling the ill effects of. When we don't practice renunciation, sometimes we, uh, you know, how much do we indulge? You know, we're supported in this culture. You know, I mean, just think what would happen to the GDP if, you know, everybody practiced simplicity, contentment, and renunciation, right? We have a big slowdown in the economy and be tragedy. God forbid the GDP would slow down. But the point of practice, the point of all this work that we do is to lighten our load, is unburdening, enlightening, right, is our practice, awakening, 
freeing ourselves. So the, the, in the context of renunciation is to understand what is causing us to not be free. What is causing pain? What is a burden or an encumbrance to our life? Where do we hold on and grip and grasp and react and resist in ways that cause pain for ourselves and others? And there's many, many ways that we do, many ways of, and I'm going to describe some of them just to kind of pay attention to, oh, what would it be like to practice renunciation or letting go or relinquishing or releasing or not holding on in relationship to these things? And the Buddha said, you know, when someone asked him, well, how, how can you condense all your massive, you know, teachings? Like, there's this extensive body of teachings that sometimes is quite overwhelming. And this person said, just give me the essence of the essence. I don't have time to do all that stuff. Just, what's the, like, give me the n- n- kernel. And he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to, is to be held onto, is to be attached to. Nothing whatsoever is to be gripped, to be grasped. That's the essence of the teaching. So we, the, the practice, the essence is, is releasing. Renunciation, not holding on. So that's really the invitation. Where do we do this that causes pain? Then we can do this that allows ease, allows relaxation, allows well-being. So that lovely line by Achan Cha that I'm sure gets quoted a lot here, if we let go a little, you let go of a little. Wonder, actually, I forget how the quote goes now. <laughs> let go a little, you have a little peace. Let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. Let go completely, you have complete peace. Right? Where are we in the context of our ability to let go? Right? Of course, letting go is easier said than done. Right? There's a lot of new age sort of admonitions to let just, well, just let go. Just, you know, you're choosing your pain. Just let go as if you could. If you could, you would, usually. <laughs> it's because we can't let go. That that's where we need to understand. We need to bring mindfulness. We need to bring compassion. We need to bring patience. We need to bring understanding. We need to bring all the different ways, that to, all different skillful means to learn how to, to see what's stopping us from you know, holding on out, out of fear or control in response to change or uncertainty or aging or you name whatever life circumstance would be. <clears throat> I came across this list as I was reflecting on renunciation. There's this 15 things you should give up to be happy. You know, and some, and, and some of them go, give up attachments, give up the past, give up on your fears, give up on resistance to change, give up on your need to control, etc., etc. Just, just give it up. <laughs> and hurry up. And you'll be happy, right? It's not that easy, right? I wish it was that easy. This is a poem from Kabir, wise elder. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold on to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe. But I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. 
When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Hmm? It's not so easy, right? We we let go, we release in some area, and then the ego's like, oh, look at me. Got this one licked. <laughs> Doing pretty good. So it's subtle, you know. And you're just like watching uh, mind in meditation, right? The The various ways we... You know, we think we're present and we're just sitting quiet, still, not getting sucked away by our usual machinations of mind. And and then, who knows, we get bored, we create a sexual fantasy, or we're still, but then we get tired, or you know, just the ways that we get seduced and allured into the to-do list and the worry mind and the planning mind. and the right? Very hard just to stay simple and still. So, again, to contextualize um, the the practice of renunciation isn't rejection, and it's not spiritual bypass, and it's not done out of aversion to getting rid of stuff out of hatred, but out of wisdom to know to hold on to things is painful, and it's better to let it go. Right? So when I started my meditation journey a long time ago in England. Uh, many of you know some of the story. I was a, I was a pretty wild young man. I was a um, punk rocker and an artist and anarchist and very creative and um, stupid and silly and um, but very playful and a little wild. And, um, and then I got into, into the Buddhist teachings and I thought, and having grown up Catholic and, and had a lot of love for some of the beautiful aesthetic in that in that tradition, and um, but I had this idea of what a what a Buddhist was, which was like basically Catholic, with a you know like a like a Buddhist veneer, but Catholic on the inside. And my idea of being Catholic, which is not necessarily what Catholic, being Catholic is, it was um, dour, serious and kind of repressed and not having any fun <laughs> and dour and and so um it's amazing how when when we let our views our, our unconscious views rule they can create havoc so i suppressed this very wild crazy playful part of myself to become what i thought was a good buddhist right? which was nothing to do with buddhism whatsoever but i thought that's what it meant you know being that quiet and like these guys, you know, <laughs> still and you know. As my sister said, you become a boring Buddhist. I much preferred you as a punk rocker. Right? That was renunciation as as a rejection of some part of myself that I hadn't really fully allowed to be. You know? And practice and dharma practice, if anything, is allowing ourselves to be as we are and letting go of that which inhibits that in a certain way. So sometimes we practice renunciation out of intention. Sometimes we practice it because we don't have any choice. In fact, most of most, if, if we pre- if we pay attention, there's plenty of things happen every day in our lives that require us to not hold on, require us to let go, require us to give, require us to challenge our views or our perceptions. 
you know, just, you know, when I drive down to Silicon Valley, which I do a lot for work, you know, I have to let go of getting there on time. <laughs> I, have to, I have to let go of my hatred of traffic. <laughs> um, so, you know, and just think about the circumstances of your life and the ways that you are encouraged, if not shouted at, to let go of your ideas or your preferences or your views. It's a great story from Ryokan, the, the poet, when he gets, he, he is one day goes into his little shack in the woods and uh, he realizes he's been broken into and his little rice pot, his rice cooker's stolen and his kettle and his incense and whatever few possessions he had. And he writes this haiku, he says, left behind, left behind by the thief, the moon at the window. Left behind by the thief, the moon at the window. So, as so much, uh, is a theme in Dharma practices, you know, it's not so much what's happening, but our attitude and our relationship to it. So how do we relate to it when things don't go our way, when we hit traffic, when we're late for meetings, when our partner's not doing being uh, the way that we would like them to be? And you know, this you know, relationship I'd say is one of the number one places that we get to rub up against uh, this invitation to renounce, to release, to soften, to let go, to allow difference, dissonance, it's really the you could say the purpose of relationship is to, you know is to force to see, it's, a, it's such a powerful mirror to see where we demand people be a certain way or parenting another very powerful way and I've watched so many of my friends recently uh, watch their kids leave home you know and it's heartbreaking and terrifying and um, and a relief. And, um, but a huge, you know, one of the biggest renunciations that we have to, that we have to let go of our loved ones, whether it's our children going to college or loved ones passing away. So I want to just talk about some, some ways, stepping stones or, Areas to think about where we can practice this quality, which we sort of do ordinarily anyway, but just to bring it a little more into consciousness. So we're, we're living more like this, open-handed, not gripped. Right? And in meditation, the, the easiest place to see that is with our thoughts, right? If we were practicing releasing thoughts, particularly the unhelpful, unwanted, painful habits of mind. I mean, how many tunnels of thoughts did you get into this last meditation that triggered anxiety or fear or tension or worry or grasping or, you know, I mean, it's, just, it's amazing where we go, where our mind drags us <laughs> over the coals right? again and again and again. We keep signing up for the same show. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and we keep doing it, and we keep getting triggered, and we keep reenacting that argument or that, that catastrophe scenario. Painful. 
And that's where mindfulness is really helpful because we see, oh, there I go again. I'm arguing with my partner again. I'm having that disagreement with my boss. I don't have to think that through it. I can just let it go. I can just drop it for a moment. How freeing is that? Just to release the hot coal from our mind. We, We have a moment of peace. Or we notice the judging mind. The the, the way we spin around looking and being harshly critical of our faults, our flaws, our deficiencies, our our insecurities, our deficiencies. And instead of holding those with compassion, we can happily regale ourselves with tirades of really quite cruel thoughts. And how powerful to notice, oh, this is judging. This is really painful. Thank you, Mr. Judge. Thank you, Mrs. Judge. Have a nice day. Adios, amigo. You know, it comes back five minutes later, but yeah, and then you practice it again. You know, it's just not a one-stop shop. You know, it's like an ongoing practice, just like being mindful is an ongoing practice. You know, in the broader spectrum of, of Buddhist practice, we're cultivating wholesome, skillful, beautiful states of mind and heart. And we're letting go of that which is hurtful, painful. And sometimes we forget we have a choice. A beautiful line from Viktor Frankl, he says that one of the greatest freedoms we can possess is our our power to choose our attitude towards any given set of circumstances. So another place to, to, to reflect on this quality of, of releasing is um, around our views. Right? How entrenched and attached are we to our views? Right? Which of course are, are correct, right? Because they're ours. <laughs> How could they not be? Right? And we just we just look just watch the debate that I think is happening tonight or tomorrow night. Tonight. Oh, the primary, right? Yeah, I very, you know, talk about attachment to views and opinions. Right? It's toxic. Can be. But to see the views you have about yourself or others that cause a lot of harm, right? particularly the views that have the word "should" in it. Right? We have a lot of views that have the word "should." I should be further along in my spiritual development. <laughs> I should be further along. I should be more mature than I am by now. <laughs> right? What a painful view. Because you're never going to remedy that. It's like you, you are where you are. And, w- and then there's a view saying, well, you should be over there and not here. Well, that's misery, if you believe it. Oh, my partner, you should be different than I, than you are. That goes down really well. <laughs> so try that when you go home tonight. <laughs> and when we believe those kind of views, then we 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 tie ourselves into a into a never-ending improvement path. 
I should be further along than I am. I should be better than who I am. I should be different than who I am. Excruciating. So to notice what kind of stories or thoughts or views that you have that, that you would that would serve you to release. Yeah. Anybody like to confess something that would be we'll do a we'll do a renunciation confession time. Anybody like to say what would be or, or what what have you practiced releasing or renouncing? Yeah. Anybody like to share? Any Buddhist Lent practitioners? I'll I'll share one. So um, so my friend was asking me up the hill. She said, "So what are you what are you renouncing?" I thought, I just talk about it. I don't do it. Um, <laughs> no, I said, um, well, interesting. She said, I, I said I um, I've just recently become vegetarian again, which is uh, a renunciation for me because I I really enjoy uh, eating and I enjoy uh, the taste of meat. Um, but because of because I don't like eating animals and because of uh, the impact on the climate, um, and for some health reasons, but mostly because of the animals, for the sake of animals, I decided to stop eating meat. Um, and I was out, I was up in the mountains this weekend, and it was cold, and my friends were eating these big, delicious-looking, juicy bowls of. Irish beef stew, like just like the thing if you if you eat meat, that's the kind of thing you want to eat in the mountains, like hearty beef. Mm. And um, and my friend's like, do you want to try it? You want to taste? It? You want to order some? Like, and it's like, mm, no. I mean, I do. Of course, I totally want to devour the whole plate, but <laughs> I don't want to harm animals through my food choices anymore. Like, I'm, it's like it's you know as much as I can. And that's my renunciation. And it feels actually very wholesome. I feel very light that I'm making that choice. And I'm not saying anybody else needs to make that choice, but for myself, it feels, um, and this is, this is a really important point around renunciation, there's a lightness that comes from it. It sounds heavy. It sounds burdensome. It sounds like a drag. Oh, I've got to give up this thing. I mean, but actually the point is it's in service of enlightening, enlightening the load. Right? And that was a very interesting example is a certain... Um, the Buddha calls it bliss of blamelessness when we live ethically, when we give up, when we renounce harming through our actions, through our speech, through our words, through our sexuality. Right? We feel lighter. We, our mind feels more, more, there's more buoyancy in it. Right? That's the point, is to lighten up in a certain way. Right? So releasing the heavy stuff, the hard stuff, or what we can, at least to, to soften it. So... Um, uh, I'm going to just run through a, a little list here of things and then maybe people might want to share. Um, so some of our mental habits. Right? What would it be to give up complaining? And I was teaching in the class last week, this is a, a person that noticed how much she complains about things. And then when she practices gratitude, she realized there was no room for complaining. Because right? she realized how much she has. She lives in Marin County. She you know, has a very nice life, thank you very much. And so the remembering to be grateful, right? encouraging that, that sense of well-being and cuts through the, 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 the negative seeking mind of what's wrong. Right? Or the if only mind. If only uh, my body was different. If only I'd started meditating 20 years ago instead of last week. That would be better. What about the pattern of resisting? 
right? Sometimes we just have a habit, and, and really what I'm pointing to in this, in this, this list is habits. Right? Sometimes we just have a knee-jerk resistance to things. Sometimes I have a knee-jerk resistance to new ideas. And my first response to, hey, let's try this, like, no, 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 it doesn't sound like a good idea. And I see that, and I see it's just, it's just a fear pattern in me. So these are a few really interesting ones to, to practice letting go. Blaming. How often do we blame? If you haven't watched this wonderful uh, RSA short by Brene Brown on blame, it's two minutes short, and you watch it on YouTube. Very wonderful. Brene Brown, psychologist. She talks about how you know, blame comes out of the mouth because we can't tolerate the feeling, so we look for the first, quickest, easiest person to blame to relieve ourselves of the distressing emotion. Mm-hmm. Very toxic, very painful for everybody. Right? We think it, we sort of momentarily sort of feel better, but not really. Or comparing. What a great thing to let go of. Comparing. How often do we compare ourselves? We look around, who's a good meditator, who's better dressed, who looks cute, or whatever. You know, we, we do it a lot. And has it ever made you happier? Right? We're just scanning nervously to see where we fit on the spectrum of spiritual hierarchy on a Monday night, you know. <laughs> what a setup for, you know, misery <laughs> or delusion. <laughs> As if we know, right? Who knows? Or controlling. This is a, this is a slightly deeper one because it's very complex, the control. But, you know, sometimes we can see the 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 contraction in our body. We're in a certain situation and we want to control the conversation. We want to control um, the events, the flow of things. Um, you know, I'm in a lot of meetings and sometimes it's, pr- it's fun just practicing letting go of controlling how the meeting is going to go and just let it do its thing and not necessarily be in my agenda. Letting go of the habit of entitlement which is also quite hard to see because generally we don't see our entitlements just as we don't see our privilege. So it requires a a more subtle awareness to turn turn attention back to how we might be unconsciously walking about with a lot of entitlement uh, or privilege. (coughs) For me as a white male, be walking around with an unconsciousness about my own privilege, for example. And having some self-reflexive awareness about that. So another interesting place to, and I'm just touching on these, obviously as I could go into a whole talk on each one of these things and might do it at some point, but so I'm hoping just some of these are like seeds where you start to like, oh, well maybe that would be something to play with. Maybe I'll work with blame or comparing or, um, you know, just like for a week, what would it be like to, to, like, to, to soften the habit of comparing? with your colleagues at work, with your partner, with whoever it is you get into comparing with. So another place that's, that's useful to pay attention to is our relationship to time, because we, we suffer a lot around time. Time scarcity, that was, that was my, one of my renunciations for this year, was to, to try and soften the belief or the grip around time scarcity. There's not enough time, right? Or the perception is not enough time, which is just a concept, an overlay on life, 
that's that's that causes contraction and fear and rushing and tension and frustration when things don't go smoothly or quickly or whatever. This is a poem from poet Hafez about time. And he says, uh, what do sad people have in common? It seems they've all built a shrine to the past and often go there and do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? Is to stop being so religious like that. So, you know, again, not necessarily so simple, but to see uh, how we tr- keep trying to have a create a better past okay? through our mind, through our machinations. In the same way, we orient to the future and believing in the castle of our future, of time. Right? We believe that the future's real. Is the future real? Is the future really anywhere but here? Is the past anywhere? Is it really behind us or is it right here? And how much mental energy and time and do we give to this orientation to the future that creates a lot of stress, a lot of fear, a lot of worry about money, about retirement, about who knows what, about loneliness or partnership. Or You know, really what the, the, the Buddhist teachings are pointing to is to renounce, you know, our ignorance. And renounce our delusion. Renounce this, I, this sense of separateness. Renounce the things that cause us pain. So one of the ways that we're a little deluded is our understanding of time and our lived experience of transience. We like things to continue. Well, we like the good things to continue. We like the bad things to not continue. And how much pain comes from this belief or this denial of transience. like aging. Is anybody aging here? <laughs> it's fun when you ask a younger group that because they don't all put their hands up. <laughs> a certain point, you know, you realize nobody gets a free pass of that one. So I love reading this poem. It's one of my favorite poems about impermanence, about waking us up in, in our trance around the vulnerability, the, the fragility of life. It's called Waking Grievers by Ellen Bass. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving them back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm or press your fingertips into the crease of a lifeline. 
When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her auntie. They just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless and pinned against time? And we're all pinned against time. It's not a week goes by these days I don't hear about some loss or some grave illness, some diagnosis of a friend or a loved one or someone in the community. We lost a dear cook this week, Uncle Mayrav. Some of you may know her, Mayrav. She was a beautiful uh, woman uh, from Israel and um, beautiful spirit of service and generosity and kindness and she just passed uh, two nights ago with cancer, breast cancer. We'll send her our blessings. And I was probably saw her two months ago. She was bright, vivacious, strong, beautiful, courageous, and it was her time. Sometimes we have to renounce the not understanding, that we have to understand the mystery. Or we have to renounce our railing at God or injustice. You know, we shouldn't renounce our injustice, renouncing injustice, but renouncing the, the mind wanting to know. It's mysterious. So where the Buddha, th- this is the last piece I want to talk about, where the Buddha orients the, 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 the thrust of his teaching in renunciation is around the, the, you know, the deep seam of the wanting, grasping, clinging mind. Right? That part of us that reaches out, that longs for and holds onto and grabs in a very sticky controlling way, experience people, things. As my teacher said, it's the thief of peace is the search for happiness in the transient. The thief of peace is searching for happiness in the transient. So that's why the Buddha talked about renouncing you talked about renouncing sense pleasure, not because sense pleasure is wrong, it's because we, we orient and fixate so much of our life around it, and it's transient in that it's incapable of providing any abiding sense of well-being. You know, pleasure is the most fleeting thing in this life. There's lots of it, and we can cram as many as we can in one day, which we try to do a lot of. Get up, have our cappuccino, and then we have our bagel, and then we have, you know, our next coffee, and then we go and whatever, you know, if, you know, your day off, you know. It's, it's okay, so not a bad thing to do, but it doesn't lead to, you know, it's just endless, this pursuit. 
And so the, what the Buddha was trying to point to is an unconditional happiness, as in a peace that pervades beyond the circumstances. Right? We're, in life, we're inevitably going to be confronted and living with circumstances that are difficult, hard, challenging, painful. Right? In our body, in our mind, in our heart, in the culture, in society, in politics, in racism and sexism and oppression. Right? We're surrounded by difficult conditions. How do we find the sense of peace in the midst of that? Which doesn't mean passivity, it just means to be not caught in reactivity. So this is very mysterious because you know, this force of wanting, right? It's, it's, it's innate to life, right? To grasp, to procreate. Right? It's, it's our biological hardwiring to seek pleasure, to seek warmth and shelter and people and food and sex and positive experience. Right? It's just hardwired. This is a uh, there's a ad from God knows what magazine, English magazine, and it's for lip gloss, and it's called it's from Dior, and it's called Addict. Addict. You could do with some right now after being in the mountains, actually. Right, and this and I have all kinds of these funny cartoons, not funny, they're sort of weird, really, but how our culture is oriented around addiction, grasping. Right? There's a cat food called Crave. Um, you know, it's kind of weird, you know. Um, so we're oriented in that way. We're oriented towards that that external orientation to happiness. And so we want to see that. We want to see that hook, that pattern, that habit. So there's a couple of people walking by a store and it's co- and the store says things no one wants and there's a couple walking by and the one person says to the other let's just stop in here and get her a little something <laughs> oh this other one um couple sitting in a living room and um and one person says to the other i'm bored honey let's buy a house in the country that has lots of problems <laughs> I just did that. I don't recommend it. Um, and one more. I had one more here. Oh, yes, this is my favorite. Um, so this is the uh, the the conditioning that we're with, and I, this is a an ad um, about this. You know, the way that we are brainwashed into wanting. I'm just, I just watched the Super Bowl ads yesterday. And, um, you know, which went, I didn't think they were interesting, actually, uh, this year. But, um, boy, the amount of brain power that goes into creating advertising that's seductive, right? I mean, it, it's a, just a megalithic industry. All in the service of wanting, seeking, grasping that which we don't have. 
fueled by the view that this will create happiness. So Spence, who is a meditator, sitting in front of all of his, you can't see all of his stuff. He's got his canoe and his scuba and surfboard and golf clubs and computer and guitar and bike and skis and dog and truck and my God knows what else, yoga mat. (laughs) And he's meditating like this, which is always weird because that's really painful after about two minutes. Unless you want to build your triceps while you're meditating. Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. (laughs) That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. He can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in a hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So there you go. <laughs> Ford Compact Pickup. So, you know, I mean, it just begs the question of how do we have a wise relationship with the material world, right? We live in the material world. We have houses and cars and stuff, right? And too much of it usually. Right? I mean, that's a, it's a wonderful place to practice renunciation in in of itself, you know. What's it like when we live with more sim- physical simplicity, right? Does anybody like having a closet like overly stuffed full of stuff you don't even like going in because there's so much stuff in there and you just don't want to deal with it? So you rent a storage unit and you put more of it over there. <laughs> you know, I mean, it does not lead to happiness, <laughs> Stuff does not lead to happiness. It leads to, it leads to, needs, leads to management. <laughs> we need to manage it, <laughs> take care of it. You know, of course, we need basic stuff to survive, and you know, there's nothing wrong with beautiful things and practical things. And but to examine our relationship, because it's all about our relationship. Is this conducive to well-being and freedom and peace, which is really what I'm seeking from these things, or not? And it's, you know, it's a complicated decision, you know. There's no one way. None, you know, I'd, so I'm, I'm in the, mis- I just, I bought a little cottage recently. Uh, I think it was the cheapest house in Marin. No kidding. Um, and that needed, uh, it was, I think most people would call it a teardown, you know, politely, polite expression. <laughs> it, um, you know, it's a bit of a wreck. And um, some foundation issues and some mold issues and some roof issues and some, you know, it's just in an old house. There's a fixer-upper, yeah. Just need some TLC and bulldozer. <laughs> and um, so, and I, and I sort of, you know, and I've, I've had, you know, property before and I thought, and I probably I th- wanted to get this because it looked like I could sort of get away with, you know, just keeping most of it as it was and, you know, just kind of Doing it sort of simply, and and um, and then people kept saying, "No, you you got to get rid of this kitchen. It's horrible. It's all it's disgusting." And I said, "No, just clean it up. And it's all good. I don't, you know, I'm simple. I don't like to buy stuff. I like to just, you know." So uh, today I gave the order for demolition, 
and uh, and it was and it was a conflictual decision, you know, because I went I went this afternoon. It was gone. There was nothing. There was no kitchen, no wall, nada. And um, you know, and I'm ordering a new kitchen, and um, and you know, so it's, it's so, and it's in service of you know, it'll be a better house and less you know, damp and all of that. And um, but it's just interesting to go through, to watch that process of like wanting to be simple, wanting to go low key, wanting to be sustainable, and and yet also wanting to be functional and smart about you know, it's very you know important thing you know, having a house and taking care of it and so but again it's it's it, it, i think the reflection at the, the root of it is you know what leads to a greater sense of well-being for oneself and others yeah. and this is a great line from tilopo great indian saint who said um uh, it's not the outer attachments that bind us but our inner attachments to them it's not our outer objects and things that bind us, right? It's not about the kitchen or no kitchen, new kitchen, no kitchen, no house, no house, or whatever it is you're in relationship to. It's your relationship to it, right? So, you can't judge the outer circumstances. You, you can't know what someone's inner entanglements are. I've seen people be more attached to an old beaten up old backpack than to a beautiful home. All depends on their level of entanglement, enmeshment with it. So, um, just a few last things. Um, and I've touched this a little bit earlier. To think about what supports releasing, what supports renunciation, what supports letting go, for you, what supports allow allows you to release. So, gratitude, I think, is a beautiful practice. Gratitude that r- helps us realize how much we already have allows us to not hold on out of scarcity or fear. Okay. Generosity, also another beautiful antidote to the, to the hoarding, clinging, is another open-handed movement. And then lastly, simplicity. I was just seeing a teacher that I work with today and she's been going through this process of clear, cl- decluttering her house and every time I go into the office, there's less and less stuff. And every time I go in, it feels cleaner. Not because she's been cleaning, but it just feels clearer. It feels simple, and it, you know, it's very zen in a certain way. And it's cool, and, and it's quite delicious, actually. And again, not that we have to live like that, but there's something in the, in the spirit of that simplicity that's actually very harmonious. So, I'll leave you there with, with this Zen cartoon. So there's a couple of monks sitting in the Zendo, and one has, has asked the other, "So, you know, what's what's going on here? What what happens?" And the other, this old wiser monk says, "Nothing happens next. This is it." Nothing happens next. This is it. That's like meditation. <laughs> Nothing happens next. Here we are. So, um, 
So what I invite you is to, um, you know, hold as a reflection. Um, I, you know, I, either where am I holding on, or what would, what can I work with or play with releasing that would serve myself or others or the planet? Small or large, simple or complex. What would be, especially thinking about where am I most entangled? Where do I most feel pain or distress? And what would allow a little releasing, softening, opening, yielding, surrendering, letting go? Okay, thank you for your sustained attention. I didn't mean to talk so long. Thank you. Have a good night. Take care. Jack will be here next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.